Voila! Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to bore the, the listeners with what's been going on in the background, but this has been fun so far. Anyway, Dolores, 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 Dolores. God bless you. I love you so much. Um, listen, I'm going to do this introduction again the second time around. It means that I have to be really slick at this introduction because this is the second, <laughs> second time round. But basically, Dolores, yeah, I mean, there's there's going to be people listening who might not know about you, and there might be some people who do know about you. So this is really for the people who, for both, actually, camps, because there might be some misunderstandings about people uh, um, of what, you know, what you're all about. And hopefully this interview and conversation is going to, explain to people what you're all about and what you're doing now and why you said the things that you said a few years back. But anyway, to my listeners, this is, you know, quite unusual, but I'm going to do a little introduction. You're quite famous. To me, you're up there with the greats like Dr. Sucret, Professor Sucret Bakhti, Mike Eden, Dr. Thomas Binder. And what, what do all these people have in common with you? Well, you called it out right from the beginning. Right, you you just knew there was something wrong, and you used your voice to speak out, and you know it cost you a lot, cost you a lot. Um, but listen, while some people want to say that you're a professor of quackery, I I don't think you are. You know, you've been a professor for a very long time. You've got over twenty five years of experience. You were a professor of translational science. I have no idea what that means at the School of Medicine at the University College Dublin. It's very prestigious. You used to teach medical students. You did research. You've published hundreds of peer-reviewed papers. You've been invited to hundreds of international meetings, invited guest keynote speakers. So people wanted you to come to their association meetings and hear you speak. Scientists across the world, you know, that doesn't normally happen for quacks. That, that happens for people who are very much respected in their field. And you know, you're into high throughput, protein array, antibody array. I mean, I don't really know, understand any of that. Biomarker discovery, diagnostic testing, whatever. But I mean, that it sounds like you kind of would know about spike proteins and testing for viruses and all that kind of stuff. So I think, again, it comes from your credentialed. You know what you're talking about. And if someone like you is going to be speaking out, you know, I would want to know about it what you had to say, but it's interesting. You just do a quick little Google and the internet is full of very critical comments about you. And there's one from McGill university. And it's this it's titled the strange case of Dr. Cahill, Miss Hyde. And it goes, professor Dolores Cahill's scientific resume can legitimize her false claims about COVID-19. And I'm like, really? What, what are Dolores's false claims about COVID-19? Cause I haven't heard any. Let's go through it very quickly. And it goes on to say, her crusade of misinformation raises the question of how far academic freedom goes. So then they quote you, and this is what apparently you said. If, you, if you're under like 70 or 65 and you've got no underlying conditions, this is all a hoax. And I think, damn right. You called it out. Way back. You'd be forgiven for thinking that this wild assertion, apparently that's a wild assertion, about a pandemic that has killed over 4.3 million people worldwide. Really? Where's this author, writer getting this from? Where can they back this up? 
who knows nothing of medicine and immunology. These words were spoken by Professor Dolores Cahill, a tenured professor, although now retired, um, at University College Dublin with a doctorate degree in immunology. She is part of a coterie of outspoken academics and health professionals spreading harmful misinformation about COVID-19. People who should know better and their contrarian crusade creates friction between two competing ideas, academic freedom and scholastic rigor. See, see that Overton window there? See the double speak? So they're saying your choice is academic freedom or scholastic rigor. Why, why are there these two binary options? I disagree with that. You should be allowed to have academic freedom and, you know, rigorously dissect because it's giving this impression that you're just speaking freely, but you're talking absolute garbage. Why not you're speaking freely and speaking scientifically? This is their clever way of manipulating words and how people think. Cahill, who until recently was teaching a class for first-year medical students called Science, Medicine, and Society, has been making a number of staggeringly erroneous claims about COVID-19 and its associated vaccines since the beginning of the pandemic, well, at least he got that bit right, the beginning of the pandemic, never correcting her mistakes and always doubling down. And I would say, Dolores, well done you, because there's a lot of people who, when they get pushed, always back down and go, I'm really, really sorry, but you didn't. And that takes guts and conviction. And that's because you're telling the truth and you're honest. So thank you. So what about these mistakes that you're making? Well, apparently... She has said falsely that COVID-19 can be prevented by taking in vitamin C, vitamin D, and zinc. Uh, duh. Yeah. Prove me wrong. Um, and you talked about hydrochloric, um, hydroxychloroquine. And the evidence clearly showed it does not work against COVID-19. This is a crack. This one had me laughing. She has boldly stated that children wearing a mask the kind that doctors, nurses, and dentists have been wearing for decades would be starved of oxygen and see their IQ lowered. Um, yeah, we know this. And masks don't work. And it muzzles them. And it retards their speech and, de and, and development and intellect and their impersonal relationships. It does It's so much. It's full of bacteria. It's garbage. I'm a surgeon. I know these things don't work. Um. But no, 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 no. You're you're the you're the harmful spreading harmful misinformation. And then, as for RNA-based vaccines, she falsely claimed that they did more harm than good. If you paid me ten million, she warned, I wouldn't take it. I would go to prison first. I would charge them with attempted murder. Anyway, it goes on and on. What I wanted to say was, Dolores, I fracking love you. <laughs> When you hear this kind, when you hear this shit, right, this, this absolute garbage, which is all over the internet, you have to laugh, don't you? Because they've got it so wrong and you've got it so right. How does that make you feel? Well, thank you, Ahmed, for having me on. And I think it's very simple. I've been, I was studying their so-called false pandemics, so-called for 20 years. So there's a communication cycle. And, you know, when I spoke out in 2020, I gave the papers and I gave the various uh, false pandemics. So when you've seen it over eight times in 20 years, mm. that is really an area because my area is around medicine and law. 
and the right for people to live. It's very simple, you know. And the bonds that academics and professors have with the people who pay us, but also a bigger bond we have to society is that if there's a, an issue in banking and the country or the world only has a few of privileged people who study the history of things, we have an absolute obligation in law and in medicine to prevent harm. So the law is just act in honor, do no harm, and that everybody in the world and in our nations have the right to life, travel, speech, privacy, and property, including the property of your body. So, so why I spoke out, I had an absolute obligation in law to prevent harm. And if my area is around medical error and adverse events and how uh, people in civil servants and in various organizations are calling, making actions in the world like so-called lockdowns or masks or trying to coerce people unlawfully to take medical intervention or deny them medical treatment without respecting their informed consent. So like saying you can't get treatment for a heart attack unless you have a PCR test, that that is criminal and unlawful behavior. And, and to do research and to do uh, publications on people in clinical trials, like I did all, all my career, you have to know the law because if I'm a principal investigator in the clinical trial or in a study and someone is harmed, I hold the liability up to attempted manslaughter or murder. And I took that very seriously all my life. So I've been lecturing about law and medicine my entire life, which includes people's right to life, which includes their right to full, free and informed consent. And that means for any intervention for anyone, whether you're a prime minister or the local doctor or physician, you must tell people the entire, the benefits and the harm. And if you don't, you then are in law about causing harm because in medicine, it's just first do no harm and in law, it's do no harm. So that means that people need to know if there's a more harm than good. And my area for my entire career was studying the false pandemics as well as adverse events and giving people full free informed consent and then taking the responsibility because really physicians and doctors have an absolute responsibility or the nurse, whoever puts the vaccine in, holds the liability for their whole lives if they have not given in law and in medicine full free and informed consent. So that's why it's easy, not easy in a way, but if I didn't speak out in law, everyone has an absolute obligation mm. by their actions and omissions to prevent harm. So very simply, if I didn't speak out, I would be as liable in law as the people giving the false information and doing the injections, where we know now more than 17 million people have been killed worldwide on the clinical trials. And if one man or woman dies on a clinical trial, it should be stopped. Yeah. God bless you. I mean, I swear to God, you've got guts and you, you've got ethics and morality and you're a good person because I know basically the world around me, the vast majority of doctors and lecturers and professors are either brainwashed or have no guts and no morals. 
and and um, you know your rare shining light. I mean, let's just go back a little bit. You mentioned there's been you know some fake pandemics in the last twenty years. I think she said eight. I'm aware of the swine flu one. That was a complete hoax. There was a guy in Belgium who famously gave a speech. I think it was at Chatham House where he was boasting about how he controlled the narrative and how, you know, you need to get out. He's saying you need to get out first to the, the news people and you need to hype them up and scare them and just go everywhere and give lots of interviews. And that way you get fear going on and you, you get the people to buy into this idea that then they need a vaccine. And it was shocking. I thought it was absolutely shocking. I've forgotten the guy's name. I and remember that, that. Yeah. Do you I remember, remember that? that and he held up a newspaper. So mm. the thing is, I suppose we can go into it maybe in the interview, but I've been really studying this all my life from my childhood experiences. So the area that you then get into is the psychology. And they have been working on this uh, for over 100 years very successfully. And if people want to do their own research, it's around the Tavistock, which is a schools of philosophy in order to manipulate people. And mm. we know we'll say Bernays nearly 100 years ago was one of the key people. Um, and then we have developed kind of schools of influence or nudge uh, is what they call it. But what that man was describing was the culmination of this abuse in a way of psychology that in order for people to do something either, you know, which is actually infringing on they or their nation's rights, you know, like freedom of travel or freedom of speech. There's a couple of things that need to be there. There needs to be a, a fear event, so shock and awe, and then confusing information, and then um, a solution that's delivered, and then a blanket of media and so that everybody works in a coordinated way between the media, the politicians and the police. So that the about two out of three people in the world or half the people um, if are very subject to that kind of psychological manipulation. And there are, when you know that, and I've been studying the, this area of psychology and, and an abuse by individual civil servants like that man, because mm. there is a whole coordination of this that has been going on for two generations where they are orchestrated to cause harm, that what really shatters their whole agenda, which is kind of a coordinated criminal agenda to deliberately cause harm, is people that their voices have a counter narrative and that you ask questions and also humor. They are the three uh, scenarios. And so when you know, for them, it's almost like a criminal mafia, right? So they're, tr they're really, what they're doing is criminally abusing people's right to health and right to freedom of information and trying to gain power in a abusive, coercive way, threatening fear, like threatening imprisonment, um, or threatening financially, or just people who avoid conflict will just cow down and wear a mask uh, or will get a vaccine because they say, well, I, I can't get my shopping for food unless I have a vaccine. Or like we saw in Australia and some other countries, people couldn't get access to their money unless they had some coercion. So what? What if you know that that's a plan for 100 years, 
And then you know that if you can get your voice out and raise questions and get people to ask questions within their family, um, and then also if you have a campaign of like a, a humor, um, then you can actually break their narrative. So why they need censorship so much is that one truth, like from Dr. Vernon Coleman um, or, you know, Dr. Sherry Tempany or the Nobel Prize winner that spoke out in January who did the immediate analysis of what was happening around the world, that if anybody listens to that and then goes, oh, it looks like the decks on that cruise ship were actually exactly the same as normal and that there is prevention and treatment, um, and that maybe these vaccines won't be around for a year, and if it is a flu anyway, everyone will be have recovered from it by the time the spring comes, that they are the kind of things that then people would go, well, why do we all need to stay in our home for a month or two months? That doesn't seem right. So, so that's why you know I spoke out in the way I did, because when you know that, that what that guy was describing in the lecture, in the secret, so-called Chatham House rules, which is what the tools they use of secrecy, that mm. he, they have to communicate to the politicians and the civil service and everybody. You know, people think that people were not aware, but for the media, the police, the courts, the politicians, the physicians, the regulatory bodies, to all engage in harmful actions, there was coordination, and that's why people coming out saying, well, this has been going on for 20 years, and this was all planned. Literally, the World Trade Organization product identifiers were for COVID-19 tests were all distributed around the world years before. And, you know, in July, I think July of 2019 in Congress, the initial acts to lock down using COVID-19 was in July 2019. And there's always a financial trigger which happened uh, in America the 17th of September 2019. And then I went on two days later to buy an iconic property that we would use in the lockdown, which we did in those important years. So, so that's why it's important. It only takes a small number of people to highlight in 2019, 2020 what's going on. And then when people's, you know, teenagers drop dead within minutes of the injection and then they start asking questions, you know, years later, um, then they will find the information that what we were saying was true. So I was speaking to history in a way in my interviews and in everything I was saying in 2020, because sadly, I, I knew if we didn't stop it, there would be huge numbers of deaths and ill health in the decades to come. And eventually people will start to ask questions. And then the last thing is in law, if you were aware of something, if you knew or should have known, like the attorney generals and the Supreme Court, right? Because people have right to life and right to travel as an inalienable right, that actually the liability in every nation rests on the shoulders of a small handful of people forever so fraud unravels all. There's no time limit of, on fraud. And then in law, you knew or you should have known that if the information was out there, the Supreme Court judges, the attorney generals, the coroners, the regulator, the prime minister, they should have known there was prevention and treatment. And in law, if there's prevention and treatment, you cannot give interventions 
that may cause harm. And then for 20 years, zero mRNA interventions were ever licensed because of the huge debts and ill health on the trials. So, and so that's, I know people might think it's complicated, but it really rests on do no harm in law and first do no harm. And that every man and woman are liable for their actions and omissions and they will hold the liability forever. Yeah, I agree. 100%. I mean, where do I even begin? Dolores, some people will listen to this and go, and I and, and they've said this to me in person. Oh, but this couldn't have been pre-planned. This is there's no way this could have happened. How could they have kept this a secret? Someone would have said something. I'll give an example. I was at this together declaration meeting like two years ago or 18 months ago, I can't remember. Jay Bhattacharya and Asim Mahotra were on the panel. I've never been to, invited to these panels. I wonder why, by the way. I was in the audience. And they were saying how it's all an accident. It's all incompetence. People were good-natured and good-intentioned, and they made mistakes. And I got grabbed the mic, first opportunity. And I said, bullshit. This is the grandest form of incompetence I've ever seen. This is the most competent form of incompetence I've ever seen. This is bullshit. This was organized and premeditated. Sure, sure. Some people have made mistakes. I'm, I'm one of them. Some people have made mistakes. Some people are well-intentioned, but there was definitely an organization, a hand behind this manipulating and, and you know, directing this. What about that question then, if I pose it to you, that this is impossible, this is a conspiracy. I think there was a conspiracy. I'm a conspiracy realist. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a conspiracy realist. I believe there was a conspiracy. I believe there were bad people who conspired to create a scenario, a pandemic to force an experimental gene intervention on us to profit from us, to experiment on us, and to kill us. That's my belief. Now, some people would say there's just, that's not impossible. You know, how could that be organized? What would you say to that? So I think, that, so that's a very good question. And I think it's a very fundamental and important question that we discuss. And I think some people who listen to this will be ready for the information now, and they may not have been three or four years ago. So I think it's a really important question. Uh, fundamentally, was this all a coincidence or was there some level of orchestration? Um, and why that's important is for everybody involved, but including now in law, a physician is a physician. That's, you know, whereas in the legal system, they're called a doctor. And to doctor something means to falsify, yeah? So I generally use the lawful term. So that's part of uh, the way of understanding it. But say if you are a doctor or a physician, why a lot of people are very antagonistic to the discussion even, um, and that's the beauty of free speech, right, is that we could, you know, none of us are right 100% of the mm -hmm. time, but it's really mm -hmm. important to not shut down the discussion. But why a lot of uh, physicians and doctors do not want the discussion is that they very quickly realize, well, if I did an injection 
And in law, there was an evidence for 50 years, you know, or 20 years that it causes more harm than good. And this is part of the orchestration. The liability is held by those physicians and doctors in their private capacity, including their property, their home, and their pension. And they are criminally liable in law. So that's why a lot of people get very concerned, right? They get very concerned about the discussion. And I was involved in setting up, you know, the World Freedom Alliance and the World Doctors Alliance. And we had like over 100,000 in the World Doctors Alliance. Um, that we recognize that this is a very serious issue for people, you know, and that it needs to be handled sensitively, right? Which I'm trying to do now. Is that okay? You know, I'm, I realize that it's, but the issue is that just because, you know, you want to earn a living for people does not give you the right to harm people. Right. So, you know, a lot of people involved in doing things that turned out to be harmful. And they justified it themselves. And there's a whole element of psychology of how do you and uh, Professor Jordan Peterson actually describes it really well when he when he discusses things like in World War Two in Germany, you had fathers going to work in 1938 as nice farmers and or I'm um, sorry, you know, as just individual people, and then in a slippery slope type way, over five or six years, they were going into concentration camps and abusing people, you know, or torturing them or murdering them. So there is an element of how do you get ordinary, decent people to do that? And that's part of the psychological manipulation that is an area of study in psychology, which they have used on nurses and doctors, right? So then to answer the question, is there a coordination behind it? And people have to do their own research, first of all, and not take my word for it. But there's a few, there's a couple of books that I will give you, and happy I can send you the links afterwards. But one of the books is 50 years old, and the title of it is None Dare Call It a Conspiracy. And it's 50 years old. It was a bestseller in 1972. Uh, it sold 5 million in the United States alone in the first year, right? So it's called None Dare Call It a Conspiracy, and it's a very easy read. There's another book by Dr. John Coleman called The Committee of 300, and that was published in 1992, so 30 years ago. And that literally goes through the roles of the individuals involved in this agenda. And then about uh, 2011, there's a book from Rosa Corey called Behind the Green Mask. Behind the Green Mask, Rosa Corey. Now they're all books that are freely available online and they're quite easy reads. So that is to answer the question about, mm -hmm. is there an organization behind this? And the answer is that historically, there is evidence and the theme for this century behind the, this criminal mafia, which is engaging in harming people and also trying to uh, manipulate people. In this century, it's called Agenda 21. And the document was published in 1992 in Rio. 
And it's now available on the United Nations website, as it has been. And I read that in the early 90s. Um, and it essentially maps out in detail. And I, because I worked for governments and in the European Union, uh, and I went to the, uh, oh, oh, you know, various organizations, there is more detail than behind the Agenda 21 document. And the Agenda 21 document is divided into chapters of decades. So Agenda 2020 is like a chapter for that decade, Agenda 2030, 2040, 2050, 2060, 2070, 2080, 2090, and then it ends in 2100. Wow. Yeah. So that is Agenda 21. So what they do is, like I saw the risk documents for who, who would then potentially interfere in their agenda, uh, and that would be individual voices, and then people like where you have strong families, strong communities very attached to their uh, heritage, you know, like having been in a, a particular rural area or an area for many, many generations, the and Amish. then strong societies, and then people who know the law, and individual professionals. So what they have done then, and of course the CIA have documents as well, is they have over, you know, 100 years, exactly the way of how they would then take down individual voices or sabotage emerging organizations that would be trying to raise awareness about this criminal um, agenda that's been infiltrated. And I think the committee of 300 from 30 years ago, where he mentions, you know, Tony Benn and all the prime ministers, um, in detail names them, all the, the committee of 300 that are involved around the world in rolling out this um, agenda to, in a way, um, try and subjugate fathers, families, grandfathers, our heritage and sovereignty and the law within our nations. Now, just to say as well that once you realize what is valuable to them, that is essentially the problem, as well as a clear communication, then, then it's actually very easy to say, well, how do we rebuild? And then that is by supporting health and families and fathers and grandfathers, and then acknowledging our sovereignty and our heritage and then recognizing their attack, like mass migration or censorship, that that is a key tool. And if we overcome the dilution of our culture, heritage, and the law, we can actually solve this, you know, within, as I say, two years, five years, 10 years, or a generation. But in a generation, we will have restored this for maybe half the population. And then the other half of the population may not want to recognize it, but as we, you know, manage to teach this like a history of the last 50 years and let people to provide the evidence for how they can study it and how it worked and then reflect on what happened in the last four years, it will be easier in one or two generations for people to overcome it. Dolores, a lot to unpack there. So I'm... I keep saying on the podcast, I'm very late to the party, but you know what? Better late than never. And um, you know what? It's um, cost me my career, but it's okay. It's all right. I'm loving this. I'm loving having conversations with amazing people like you. I love learning things and I love teaching. 
and sharing my knowledge with um, thousands of people, which is what's happening now. I haven't read this Agenda 21, and I can promise you I will be. Um, in my head, in my head, I've been connecting the dots, and I keep saying this again and again, and forgive the listeners if they're bored of hearing this, but I'm saying to people, everything's connected, everything's related, and if we don't connect the dots, we're missing the bigger picture. So things like the climate scam, the war on um, the family unit, the war on masculinity, the yeah. war on religion and faith, and not organized religion, but spirituality and God and connection like that. The war on our cultures, the, the mass immigration, um, the, you know, like I said, the, the inflation, the monetary policy, the fiat currency, the fake wars, the fake pandemics, the sick healthcare system. It seems to me everything's linked. The transgender ideology, everything's linked. And there's no point me just banging on about COVID, 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 or mRNA jabs, or no virus, virus, or whatever. It's all related. And we need to talk about everything. And I like to inject a bit of humor because that slices through their propaganda. That's why the court jesters were there. Because you know what? They, they, they brought the, the, the kings down a notch. Stopped them from becoming crazy, tyrannical nut jobs. You need a bit of humor to to just, you know, keep it keep it basic. But you know, what is the ultimate agenda? Is it they just want more power, more money, and they want to dumb us down even more and they want to depopulate us? Is that the aim of it? Is that I mean, in a nutshell, what do they want from that from us? Now, brilliant question. <laughs> brilliant question. Um, and also, I think exactly as you said, the two questions I think for people who are coming to this new or relatively new before they can move on is, is there a coordination and what is the ultimate end goal? So these are very fundamental questions. And of course, as I've always said, I'm very happy to be in a debate with anybody, anywhere, anytime. Mm. And be challenged by like a thousand people or twenty thousand people. So I could be wrong. Yeah, it's important that we all have to live. Uh, you know that we're we're all learning, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think so. How I preface it then historically is it kind of in a way. So there's different levels, right? So I will go at the intermediate level first of all. Is that imagine you know some time ago, many generations ago a group of people get together and say, we want our descendants in generations in the future to be better off than everyone else. Yeah, and so that makes sense. And in a way, it's surprising that there weren't hundreds of groups of people essentially deciding to set up a mafia so that their descendants would have control. <clears throat> Does that make sense? 100%. So, and essentially, you know, we know in various countries, like in Italy, there was the mafia, right? But what we have here is the end, you know, result of a very sophisticated mafia. Mm. And so their aim, and so I'm always very solution focused. And if you, I stopped talking about, we'll say this particular issue from about July, 2021, because we don't want to instill fear. So I'm just going to preface this as well, that I'm explaining this not to instill fear, but immediately to say, once you understand 
the structure of this criminal organization uh, and how it is rolled out, you immediately have the solution. So I'm just going to give you my take on the criminal mafia. Um, and then you immediately have the solution, right? Is that okay? Because Great. the solution is just that in law, the, the solution is the law. And the law is that every man and woman is accountable for their actions. So if you are involved in something that is harming people, and you are paid or you're sworn an oath as a police constable or attorney general or the regulator in Ireland or in England or the coroner, that the buck stops with you, right? So that is the solution. So while what I'm going to describe has been rolled out in all nations of the world, except for the native indigenous peoples where this mafia has not reached through, right? Which probably could be one in probably 10% of the world or 20%, so it's actually significant. And they are the roots of how we actually push back for people who actually know the law. So, so the, the solution is that individual men and women are liable, doesn't matter who you are, and that in law, one precedence against one coroner or one prime minister or one attorney general applies to everybody in the world, right? To all attorney generals and all men and women. So it's actually much easier to solve than we think. Yeah, because that comes from the spiritual element of the law is that how the law works is um, that we all have an obligation in law to do no harm and act in honor, but that requires us to prevent harm immediately. And that's why people will know that every one of us has the same rights to arrest people to prevent harm, right? People will know that the same rights as people who are paid as police constables. And that comes from our, our duty to act immediately. And that all of us are liable for our actions and omissions. So say if there mm. were three children that I didn't know, but I was at a playground and someone had actually stabbed two of them, I would have an absolute obligation to protect those two children and the third child to act there and then, and that's the law, right? Now, so it means that if we work together coordinatedly to hold a coroner who has falsified death certs to account, that holds everybody who's falsified death certs as a precedence in law. Right. So that is the solution that people are aware and why that is very frightening for all these civil servants and everybody is that they did a lot of criminality because they wanted their salary and their pension and they were afraid to challenge uh, the criminal activity or the murdering that was going on. Mm. And they're very frightened. So, so you know, but so we have. Um, a lot of ways in a very simple way through the lawful trial by jury process. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So then just to go back then to what the criminal mafia is, right? What it's all about. Um, so initially, let's just start from maybe 1155 or 1302. What's gone on is a group of people 
who so education in the traditional way was quite uneven, we'll say a thousand years ago, even though ordinary men and women, so-called, had a huge amount of knowledge and oral tradition that is much more, their repository of knowledge was probably a thousand times more than the average um, man or woman now. So like I'm in touch with many indigenous peoples like the Inuit. And one of the Inuits said to me, you know, that when you're an Inuit and you live in your house and there's uh, snow and ice for four months, you literally can fix your electricity and your central heating and your tractor and make your own food. And if you get unwell to try and heal yourself, right? And you can provide for your own food. So what a small group who had other access to transport and to, we'll say some elements of power, they got together and said, let us strategically and in a co a concerted way, remove the lawful processes and the knowledge of the law from people and let us in law claim people's property. We will claim it and then use force to deny people their inalienable rights in law and their right to property. And then we will miseducate them over an insidious process. So in 1515, Cardinal Wolsey, who was advising Henry VIII said, we will use learning against learning. When they couldn't stop the printing presses, they decided that things that would be written from then on would be uh, written, but learning against learning would be that they would start the falsification process but the real crux of it is that they have developed this legal system where they turn a baby who's alive in law into this corporation, which is a business entity. And then they claim, so if mine would be Dolores Cahill, they then claim through a coordinated process that anything that Dolores Cahill owns belongs to this mafia system. And if people want to look it up, there are three fundamental um, initiatives that they did. One was in 1302 called Unum Sanctum, U-N-A-M, Sanctum, Unum Sanctum. And then 1542 is Henry VIII's Crown Act. And then 1666 is the Seta Keve Act. And that's still on the UK legislature. So this is really the elements of this criminal legal system that is trying to deny people <clears throat> the knowledge and the processes of the law is run by agents of this system, which are in little regions that they made themselves, tried to make themselves independent. So the Vatican city state, the city of London city state and uh, Washington. And they say that they have in the legal system immunity, but actually there's a hierarchy. The law is much higher and more powerful than anything written down. And uh, that no one is above the law. That's the simple process. So this system has been going on probably for 3,000 years since before the Old Testament. So Genesis 1.26 describes this system 
the lawful system and the legal system. So it says God granted man dominion over the uh, land, the air and the water and the creature that creepeth. And the creature that creepeth, the legal system is putting a veil or a spider's web over the law. And they're very big into symbology. And the symbol of the evil is the serpent or the snake. And the sewer is the word that connects the land to the sea. So like the Holy Sea uh, is the analogy that um, they are kind of overlaying the knowledge of the law. So it's, it's kind of intricate in one way, but what I always focus on, it's so simple. And that's why I organized Trafalgar Square is that my rights, one man or woman can defend everybody's rights. So for the second Trafalgar Square that I paid for the speakers in August 2020, I was defending everybody's rights to freedom of speech, freedom of travel, right? Because that's how you break the lockdown. And I was prepared to go to prison because it would have been a precedence and they knew it is you just need one man or woman in the whole world to take on because the legal system operates the same. The law is above it. My rights embodies the 92 year old rights to travel or to buy food or to visit their loved ones. Um, and so it's actually very simple. So me organizing that or us setting up Freedom Travel Alliance, where we flew thousands of people around the world, we were, as a small group of people, breaking the lockdown everywhere. And they couldn't take us on because they knew we just needed one flight and one traveler or me to actually expose the criminality and unlawfulness um, and then to have a precedence case against one prime minister or one attorney general in the world. Whoa. Okay. We've got a lot to talk about there. I need, I wish I was keeping notes, by the way. Dolores, your knowledge is incredible. I'm, I'm, I'm loving this. I'm going to have to go back and listen to my own podcast now with you. I normally don't do that. <laughs> I'm good. You're teaching me stuff that I, I didn't even know about. I mean, going back, you were talking about you're open to debate with anyone. I love that about you. You know, I wrote a Substack same, um, saying to the TV doctors, you know, <clears throat> I wrote an open letter. I said, look, all you TV doctors, um, you know, David Bill, Zoe Williams, Rachel Clark, you know, Amir Khan, um, Teresa Kelly, Ranj Singh. I said, look, my understanding is that all of you at some point in the last few years have recommended vaccinations be the childhood schedule, fluid or flu or COVID-19 publicly, either on social media or TV. However, you know, I would like to invite each of you onto my podcast and discuss why you recommended these vaccines as well as their safety and efficacy profiles. And I said, for transparency's sake, I'm coming from a position where I no longer trust these vaccines or the vaccine industry. But I think it's important to keep an open mind and have respectful debates. Many people are wary of your motives and are no longer trusting of, of doctors because of what we have been through these last few years. My invitation isn't a way of me catching you out. There is no agenda, but seeking the truth. Why heck? I'll even post my questions here so you aren't caught off guard. And there's questions from myself and my supporters. There's 101, but one of them, for example, number one is, have you ever been paid by Big Pharma to promote a drug or vaccine? Which company, how much, when, how many times, and for which product? You know. So that open letters there, I'm like, look, come on, come on my show. Come on, let's talk about it. You know, respectfully, politely, I've not had anyone take up that offer. And it's strange, you know, you, 
you would think if you were willing to go on TV and brag and talk about how amazing these products are and how everyone should get it, you would jump at this opportunity to come on my show and say it all over again and tell me why I'm wrong. But it's been pin drop silence. And that comes back to where you were talking about censorship. The way you you get rid of the truth is to cover it up and conceal it and not let it out. Whereas the lie is the propaganda that needs to be blared out again and again and again and again. Anyway, so going back to what you said, you said, look, this goes back like 3,000 years before even the Old Testament. I mean, who, who are these people? I, I mean, is there a continuous line of these people? This family, these families? Or, you know, are, are they just different people that come along and say, this is a great idea, let's carry on with this? And, you know, a lot of people have been talking about the Bible and Romans and Revelations and Isaiah. I think I might have got it all wrong. I haven't read the Bible. But I, I think I will now. I, I'm personally anti-religion because I think it's all been captured by man. And, and, and by that, I mean, you know, it's all about control, guilt and shame. And I was in a religion. I was in a cult. I've left a very long time ago. I believe in God inside me. I think there's a God. And I think there's a spiritual war right now. There's a spiritual element to what we're seeing. But, you know, there's a lot of people saying to me that the Bible, the Old Testament was, was right about a lot of this. Where does this all tie in? Were the people in, the, in those days, they, they were seeing the same evil that exists today and were warning the future generations? Is that what it was? What do you think? Now, that's amazing questions. And maybe just to, for your first little comment about why people don't want to debate. Yeah, just to finish that one off about when you're offering for free speech, right? The reason why I think uh, people don't want to take to debate is it's all about, it takes literally, it used to take me like two minutes to tell people what was going on, like the people dressed up as police, right? So it's very, they understand, and it comes from this spiritual <clears throat> domain as well, that people actually have a knowing, right? Because in a way, um, we're all like a drop in the ocean, but the ocean in the drop. And we all know this, right? Which is why the whole propaganda and censorship and everything. So one of the knowledges is why those physicians or doctors don't want to debate you publicly is that if they defend the injections, they then set themselves up as being the precedence case and taking all of the responsibility for causing harm. Does mm. that make sense? Because yes. if they come out and say, uh, you challenge them in the proper way, right? You know, ask them the question, do you have evidence to say that these injections are less harm than good? And if they say, yes, I've injected myself, if they say, right? That means that they hold the liability. And if it was, they then are setting themselves up when the evidence comes out, which they know is there, that the evidence was that these, these injections were killing people, then you are in the lawful responsibility for trial by jury for murder and contributory manslaughter, right? That it doesn't matter if you wear a white coat. If someone was going around, they're called shots for a reason, right? Shooting people. So going around into a care home and like in Ireland, you know, uh, 51 people were injected and eight of them were dead within 48 hours. 
26 mm. of them were dead within a few weeks, 14 funerals within two weeks, right? Now, just dressing up, and when you know that happened in January 2021, in the first week of the rollout in Ireland, the first few days, yeah? That mm. anyone who would come on an interview with you that would defend that literally could be reported to the police, and they hold all the liability for all the deaths then because by their omission to investigate the deaths on this medical intervention, they are acting criminally and unlawfully. And because huge numbers of deaths were happening in otherwise healthy people, you're then on the spectrum of murder and multiple murders, right? So do you mm. get why people, why? So what, they, what they're doing in this concerted effort, which I'll address the second half of your question is that this whole system works by, by lying to people and misrepresenting the law that somehow they have immunity. And they also think in the so-called herd mentality that if hundreds and thousands of people say the same thing, that no one will ever come to me as a civil servant or a coroner or a regulator. Mm. That's what they think. There's like, oh, there's so many of us. Whereas if they do an interview with you, they then are putting themselves in a situation that that interview can be analyzed and that they will hold the responsibility. So that's what the Committee of 300 and the Tavistock and this whole agenda is about, is inculcating people into a profession and promoting them so that they feel like they have no accountability to their brothers and sisters within their villages and towns, that somehow they are yeah. protected. And the protection goes through mm. the barristers and solicitors, you know, the people dressed up as priests and wearing black, and yeah. the agents of this system that dress up as police, but are actually all working for a different private business called the city of London, and they are agents of that business and duplicitously and criminally, they all have two jobs. So they have the job nominally as a so-called attorney general, because we think, well, they're attorney general, they're on the Supreme Court, they're a coroner, but duplicitously and criminally and fraudulently, they take another job. And they say in the mafia job, the mafia job is of higher importance than the job that you're actually, you know, where you're accountable to the men and women in England or Ireland or Greenland or Hawaii or whatever. Does that make sense? They have no. two jobs. No. Who, who, who is they? So every man dressed up as attorney general or Supreme Court justice or coroner now and this is the answer to your question. This is the system, okay? So this system is like a spider's web over everything that we think works in our society, like the regulators, the coroners, the police. So the they is this system, which is a combination at the head of it, of the Vatican, the city of London and Washington. So that is they, that is the operational phase. So. Uh, we'll say in, in King Henry VIII's time, so-called, it was whoever was the Pope then. It was whoever was running the city of London then and the king who was the monarch. 
Yeah. And they hadn't really extended it to Washington in his time, which is the banking element. So the day is the book, the committee of 300. That is the day. So there are certain roles. Um, and then Agenda 21 is also describing in a multi-generational way how the system works. Yeah, because it's a ratchet. So if you want to undermine fatherhood or how families look after their brothers and sisters or how aunts and uncles and grandparents used to look after their grandchildren, if there was a divorce or if someone had to go away, there is a ratcheting of an undermining of the family unit or the lie and the fraud about mass migration, right, in order to flood people with cultures to undermine the heritage, the language, and the tradition of difference. So if you're going to do something insidious, um, it takes a lot of generations. So the day, the day is then the this multi-generational component, right? So yeah. when I yeah, so when when I was saying when you were saying attorney general, they have two jobs. What I meant was, what is their other job? Yes, yeah, so I'm just going to describe it now. And can we just uh, pause it for a second? I just have to plug in my laptop just for one second. No, that, this is perfect because I need to go and pee. So I'll pause. So you can ask me. There we go. Dive in. Great. So you were just asking around, uh, do these people have two jobs? And what is the second job? Which is a yes. very good question. And it's actually really good. Um, I'm delighted to have the opportunity that we then look go into the detail of how it actually operates the system. So mm. the second role that these men and women, so when we're talking about it, we're talking about regulators, essentially everyone in the operation of the courts, the things we call courts, the regulatory system, the civil servants, the ministers, yeah, or whatever the so-called government, and particularly the people, barristers, solicitors, and people who we think of as police. So their second job are as agents of the system, which comprises the Vatican, the city of London and Washington, the other mm. stock market. And they are then agents of this system. So the system is the system is really what we know of as the legal system. And for example, for the police, they are agents of often deceptively a business with a very similar name, and the business is registered within the system, like the city of London. So, for example, in the nation of Ireland, if you look at Angorda Siakana, which is part of Ogla Naheran, which was set up, if you look at it on the web pages back in 1919 uh, and the Department of Justice, these men and women who are paid to be police constables or members of the lawful organization Garda Siakana, which is part of Ogla Naheran, should only have that employment role. But if you look up Garda Siakana, you'll find that there is a business in the city of London called Garda Siakana in all capital letters, two words, and that is a separate business. And if you look up the number of people in that business, it's 14,000. And the role between uh, those, the, the employment role is as agents. And the agency is 
has a particular title in this legal system and the agent so has a particular way of writing their agency role and that involves like Mr. Smith or uh, police agent Smith or, uh, you know, Murphy or whatever the name is, right, Walsh, yeah? So the, the legal title is articulated through the title, Mr. or Dr or whatever the title. <clears throat> and in the legal system, an element of it is from the so-called Vatican, which is the ecclesiastical system. And so if they are part of the, the Vatican would be this church system, they then dress up as agents of the ecclesiastical system, and they then take on the titles of priests. So like a minister is a priest, right? That's what we would have said, a minister ministering to their flock. But that's why we have people in the office of the legal system as ministers. So minister of education or minister of justice, yeah? And that's why if you look at like the, the legal system operating, the men that we think of are involved in lawful justice are actually dressed up in black as priests, as agents of this system that operates between the Vatican and the city of London. And they use symbology. So a lot of it is black, right? Which is like the symbology of the death of the knowledge. And so you're kind of in a system that is mocking people. Um, and that's why the barristers and solicitors will only deal and try and entrap people into the legal system by using things like Mr. or Dr. Murphy or Mr. or Dr. Smith. So they are, by their words, entrapping people into the legal system. So in law, they're trying to have it both ways. They are trying to pretend they're operating in the law, but in the law, every man and woman, the law is so simple that ignorance of the law is no excuse. So very simply, people should be going in there going, wait a minute, my name is John or Anne. Why are they calling me Miss Smith or Mr. Murphy, right? So that's why the whole thing is so simple. And the, the whole thing is so simple. So in the law, men and women have a lawful name, and that would be John or Mary. And men and women, the name is very important, and the language is really important. So the law actually has a language. So it would be French in France, Spanish in Spain, in English in England, and Irish and English in Ireland. And the words that you use have a dictionary. And we'll say in England, it is the Oxford Dictionary of English. And in other countries, mm. it would be. So that means that when you're using words in the law, they have a particular meaning. And that all men and women, ignorance of the law is no excuse. So my name in law would be Dolores. And if I am accused of something, and John is accusing me, that if John is falsely accusing me, that itself is a criminal offense, 
And the law is then done by a trial by jury and everyone, it's the actual trial by jury and through the voice, yeah, that someone accuses you and they have to hold the liability and then I, have, I am innocent unto proven guilty. So then everybody in the system now that is like a spider's web are agents of the city of London and they will only use their titles like a legal title. People think calling you Mr. or Doctor is polite. No, it's actually switching the jurisdiction into the legal system. And the legal system only deals with legal entities which are like a business and that business is often written on a piece of paper like a register and it is a completely separate language called legalese and that business is not alive so therefore it can't speak it cannot be harmed and that is why the clinical trials have not stopped is that they're saying it is businesses legal entities that are turning up and one business, Dr. Malik, is you know potentially injecting Mr. Smith. Now, if Mr. Smith drops dead, the business, the business has just stopped doing commerce in the legal system, but they do not recognize that there is living men and women that can be harmed. And so it's just a spider's web over the system of justice. So the real system of justice then happens with men and women in a trial by jury, and there are nobody dressed as police, or sorry, dressed as priests, or dressed up in black making a mockery of justice. So how you then unravel the whole thing, which I did in Trafalgar Square, and which we thought in Freedom Travel Alliance, and in Guardians 300, and the World Freedom Alliance, all over the world, very simply, every country in the world is, you just say to them, what's your name? And what language are, you know, what is your role now? Because the law happens now, the legal system happens in the past and in the future. And if they say I am, so the agents have titles like officers. Um, and if they say I am police officer Smith, you say, no, no, I'm not interested in the agencies, whatever your other roles are. If you are dressed up and as a police constable now, in law, you must tell me your name, your first name. And of course, every single one of them, hundreds of them, they literally turn around and run away. And that is the power of the law because um, what's another important piece of information is that societies break down in a day if you have criminals dressing up as police, so over that's how the law has emerged over thousands of years because you know people are very bright and say if i don't like you or your family for whatever reason i can then get myself employed as attorney general or as a policeman and then start hassling you and your family dressed up as police and abusing my role so everywhere in the law, in every nation, the second highest crime is to dress up as police and misrepresent the law through your role and through your actions. And that has a special crime reserved for people who present themselves as judges, police, members of parliament, and it's called malfeasance. 
It's a criminal offense. And in England today, it's 20 years in prison. And everyone is innocent until proven guilty. And the law operates through a trial by jury system of 12 men and women. And that was why I was the organizer of Trafalgar Square in July 2020 <clears throat> and in August 2020 was that, and Boris Johnson increased the uh, so-called legal unlawful charges of 10 years in prison, specifically for me, was the that they wanted to put me in prison for 10 years for organizing a meeting of more than 30 people outside in the summertime in order to intimidate all of us, but particularly me. So I went ahead and paid for the speakers again. And the people dressed up as police that used to take me like two minutes to go, you have to tell me your name if you're going to handcuff me and you will be the precedence in the whole world because this whole COVID-19 thing is done by people dressed up as police trying to infringe on people's inalienable rights of freedom of travel, freedom of speech. And even though they issued warrants that I never saw, um, they were trying to intimidate us. So malfeasance is really the unraveling is that whoever was the coroners in 2020, 2021 and the attorney generals in all the countries, it's very easy for us to then turn the spotlight back on a handful of people to say, you guys in law knew or should have known that there was prevention and treatment and it was malfeasance for you to pass pieces of paper to try and infringe on people's right of travel. And they hold the liability. Fraud unravels all, no time limit on fraud. Okay, wow. Right, I've got, I've got stuff to talk about the law, but before we get there, Dolores, <clears throat> what you're, have you seen the movie Matrix? Yes, I have, many times, indeed, yes. It's a great movie. And in that movie, when they try and wake up the people from the Matrix, it's so difficult for some of them, so the world up, you know, up, it turns your world upside down in such a way that for some, it's just too much. It's too much. They can't cope. Um, and I think what you're telling me, I've heard before in little snippets, but you've said it so eloquently. I think for the first time, it's painful and difficult to understand the second time, the third time. Even now, I'm just shocked and I don't want to believe it. It's like that scene where you wake up from the Matrix and realize that everything you knew was a lie. And I can forgive people not wanting to face this because it is so painful an experience to know that your whole existence is a lie everything you've been taught is a lie every institution regulatory body authority trusted authorities it's all a lie it's quite a lot to take in and i know what you mean by you need to hold people by their hand and take little baby steps because it can be just too much <laughs> like too much. Now, when you say agents and people working like the police, you know, and the doctors, you know, I was a doctor, you know, I've left the GMC, by the way. I don't know if you know this. Well done. I didn't, I didn't see the point of belonging to the organization, especially when I can't practice. I'm not allowed to make a living anymore. But this authority is hanging over me with power over me. Anybody can make an anonymous complaint. And they can investigate me. They can suspend me. They can start asking me to come to tribunals. And 
my name is on the paper and I'm a, you know, a disgruntled doctor, a disgraced doctor, a dishonest doctor, you know, a quack or whatever. I, I didn't want them to have that power over me. So I said, frack you. I don't want to be in, I don't want you, your power over me. Let me go. And the funny thing is I had to ask them to let me go and give them forms, but they did. They've let me go now. They said, you're not under, you're not registered. You're not licensed anymore. And I also feel quite relieved now because I just feel the whole profession is just lost its way. Or maybe it never had its way and I've only just woken up to it. Maybe it was always like this. It was always designed to be a sick service. You know, I remember, you know, you teach medical students. I remember the first ever medical lecture I had. It was in the Glasgow University Anatomy Department. It was one of these old-fashioned Victorian buildings, you know, um, Gothic. It was... Um, the lecture theatre was wooden stalls coming down very steep towards this lecture theatre, all wooden panelled, very dark. And this professor came to the front <clears throat> and spoke to all of us and said, you are the top, top 1% of society. You're the cream of the cream. You know, never forget that. You know, you're the smartest, brightest, blah, blah, blah. And at that time, it didn't sit well with me. I'm from a working class background. And I was like, okay, man, whatever. And even now, I look back at that indoctrination, making you feel that you are better than your fellow man and woman. You're above them. They're below you. What a weird thing to say on your first ever lecture. Surely, if I was going to go back and I was the lecturer, I would say to them, you are being given this wonderful position to be a doctor an opportunity yeah. you should be grateful you should be honored you should have humility and you should treat your fellow man and woman with kindness the way you would your loved ones and never ever forget this special station that you've been bestowed and make sure you preserve it and protect it and look after it and that you you know you deserve this not the the hubris you are the top 1%. You're the, what the frag, man? And, but maybe this was, maybe this is what they do. Maybe this is how they divide us and make us think differently. And this is why the doctors think they know best and, and they can go ahead and jab because they're following science. And what do you stupid peasant know? You know, you're not a doctor. You're, you're not the top 1%. Maybe this is how it works. I don't know. What do you think? Um, so I think if it's okay, I'll, I'll frame it as well around the solution as well, right? So the thing is, the solution is beautifully easy and also for people to understand. So if my grandmother was alive, she'd be over 140 years <clears throat> old. If my father was alive, he'd be more than 100 years old. So it turns out that there was this system really has only the is operated through the birth certificate and the legal the legal entity system, which is criminal and fraudulent. But really, that system has only been around for less than 100 years. And in law, your private your property is private and your money is private. So the whole system, like in Ireland, we have 230 taxes. That system in the world only started in 1913 in the world. And in Ireland, really, for maybe half the population, <clears throat> only in the last 25, 30 years, right? So the thing is, for people maybe in England, it's been two generations for me. 
the, the, the law operated throughout all the professions in the last 25 years. Yeah, the police, and actually in many of the organizations with my interactions with the veterans in England and Britain um, and Ireland and with the police who have left the police or been bullied out of the police, that up until the 1980s, they were all taught the law, right? So for what the system where you deal with people who are agents of the system, they're always on a register and licensed. So the fraudulent system, but before that, 30 years ago, the, the physicians in law were actually operating in the law. So that's just to say the system of licensing and registering being spread out into the broader society is only really in the last one or two generations. And mm. before that, all the nurses and coroners and the uh, educators and the you know police all operated in the law. So that's a good thing, right? So this is not an overwhelming system. And mm. then it's very simple for people. If you so it turns out that it is it is fraud and misrepresentation and deception to actually have a second role that is not honestly disclosed. So when you qualify as in medicine, your name is a physician. When you are operating as a lawful, someone who's upholding the law, you are a constable. So if you then, what we need to do is just educate people that someone who calls themselves an officer <clears throat> or a minister is actually telling you they, they are agents of a system that they have no lawful, it's like having a second job that is not lawful, that is actually fraud, yeah? Particularly mm -hmm. when being an agent, they are involved in swearing an oath that will defend the business of the agency to a higher extent than the rights of people to life and to get lawful um, health service or lawful accountability. So the words for agents of this system are people who use the words Mr. or doctor, because a doctor, you when you are on a register and, and you use the legal title of the agency that you're now engaged in, mm -hmm. What you have said is that you are giving your property as an agent and you are then giving them all of your property, your knowledge, and they are licensing you back. So the register is actually their claim of ownership of your name and your property. And then to come full circle, one of the you know, mottos that they have to encapsulate this whole system is you will own nothing. So when you offer your life energy and your knowledge to the system, they claim all your knowledge and your time and all the property and your bank accounts and your home. And they put that name on a register and they have a higher claim in law than your legal title, which is the lowest title claim to, and you will own nothing. Yeah. 
So that's how the system works. I don't know, you know, so when you're on a register and licensed, it is the agency that then has control. You are licensed by agents. Now, if that system was the lawful system, that would be fine, but actually it is a criminal mafia that is misrepresenting the law and health. So it's it's two systems. And to untangle yourself from that system, you then just claim, I am operating in the law, and I am a police constable now, or I am a physician now, and I will give you full, free, and informed consent. So what's beautiful is that the system in a lot of countries is only really encapsulated everywhere in maybe 50 years. So it's actually easier to untangle. It's actually very simple to untangle. And how we are untangling it is uh, just to give people the knowledge that once you have a lawful mechanism of holding people to account, in a trial by jury of 12 men and women, where everyone is innocent, that once you have that accountability mechanism in place, most of these general people are cowards, right? So they will literally themselves stop doing harm once they know that no one is above the law. And that's why even though like in Trafalgar, there was 800 or 1,000 robocops and maybe, you know, people dressed up as police, but all, you know, totally with helmets and, you know, not identifying themselves and uh, harming people, you know, the, in a beautiful crowd that was peaceful. But the men who were dressed up as police, there was, you know, maybe a hundred of them. Once they knew within one second, you are accountable, they literally disappeared, right? Because they realized if I, as a coroner, can be held liable for contributory murder or manslaughter, all the coroners will stop falsifying death certs immediately. And the same with the autopsies, right? And the undertakers, you know, everybody, yeah? So, sorry, can you just, one second, when you say the police officers all disappeared because if they as a coroner, are you saying they're also coroners? Are we using different terms? For no, no, no. Sorry. What I mean is like, you know, when I was in Trafalgar and I just said to the police, you give me your name because it's actually <clears> 20 <throat> years in prison for you to misrepresent the law and say that I don't have an inalienable right to travel and speak. Literally, the police turned around. Right. And I'm just given another example that if, you know, you wrote to all the coroners in Britain now and said, we now have a trial, a jury enrollment system in Britain and Ireland in 2024, and that every man or woman who dies, there is going to be a trial by jury oversight on every death cert that you as a coroner autograph in law, right? I'm just mean, you know, there are certain, the legal, the law operates through key roles. They are constables, attorney generals, and coroners, right? Because for to prevent criminal mafia, if you, you know, people get murdered, right? So how you then prevent an undermining of law and society is to investigate every death and to hold all the people accountable in law involved in that, whether they are a physician or a coroner or the police uh, constable that turns up 
So once you write to them, if we had a lawful jury enrollment system in Britain and Ireland now, you would see that literally straight away, a lot of the criminality would stop immediately. So I'm just giving the examples that the police, the people dressed up as police in Trafalgar Square in August 2020 and July 2020, once they realized they could be held accountable because, you know, by someone who knows the law, you just have to do it with your voice. Mm. They did not, they did not arrest or touch me, right? So that's what I mean is it's actually so simple. And then, so your question was, a lot of people may find it overwhelming. And so in everything that we're doing, so I'm involved in setting up cooperatives around, you know, in multiple countries, is that we don't really have to explain all of this to everybody in one week or one year even. What we need to do is to, you know, there's already, I would say, one third of the population everywhere that is now very aware of what's going on and the solutions. And then what we need to do is to start off with the important aspects of society, like uh, caring for the sick, caring for the elderly, potentially having, like we have 600 nurses in Sweden, if they had a lawful uh, oversight and regulatory mechanism of nurses in law, they could start providing good care, lawful care, caring care to the elderly in Sweden and prevent people being in the legal system where people are going around saying that tomorrow you're going to have a do not resuscitate. You know what I mean? And that so we don't need to fully explain it to everyone this year. Okay. But we okay. need to take back the crucial system like constables and coroners and physicians and nurses to operate lawfully. Okay. So I've got a few questions, Dolores. So I like your 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 analogy of the mafia. Like I think it is these are all mafia because and the mafia also you always think of a racket. So <clears throat> you know they they an extortion. So they create this illusion that there's a problem and that you need them to protect you and you need to pay them for that service when they are actually the cause of the problem and they're extorting money from you for the illusion that they're protecting you. I mean, that's what they do. This is what the mafia gangs do. And basically, we're in this illusion that we need the government, we need the state to protect us, when in actual fact, they're the biggest criminals. They steal 90% of the wealth that we generate. They make us sick and ill, inject us from the moment we're born, and kill us. You know, these these are the, the government and the state is not our friend. They're the mafia. They've dumbed us down, made us sick, stolen from us, and then pretend that they're there for our good. If that's not a mafia, I don't know what it is. But anyway, let's go back to and I and in uh, please be patient with me. I know I know you might be like, ah. Quite often you go on about in the law, in the law. Let's just clarify. I think I've got an idea of what you mean by this, but look. When you say that in the law, we're not talking about any written down law book by some person somewhere. We're not talking about any physical document. Are you just talking about this innate human law, the law of the world, the life, 
God-given law, law that we just know in us is right and is wrong. You know, do not steal, do not harm, first do no harm, do not lie, you know, do not deprive other people of what there is theirs, do not take away their property. I mean, things that you don't need to know about, you just know this is what's right and what's wrong. Is that what you mean by the law? Or is there somewhere you can go and find out what the law is and what is in the law? Excellent. So the law is, I'll tell you where you can find it, first of all, but the law applies to every, I'll tell you what the law is first, mm -hmm. and then I'll tell you where you find the information. Brilliant. So the law applies to all men and women everywhere. And the law has evolved over thousands of years so that every nation, every man and woman, whether wherever continent they were on, it's the same. And this is the law that men and women must act in honor, do no harm, and their ob lawful obligation to their people in the nation is that they also have an inalienable right. So this is a right from the moment that they are conceived to their last breath. They have these five rights that encompass everything, which is the right to life, travel, speech, privacy, and property. And then there are certain maxims of law which have emerged for thousands of years and are the same everywhere. And that's why we have a network in everything I'm doing with the native indigenous peoples. And they know the law and they have an oral tradition of the law, which is very powerful. And it does not matter where you lived for thousands of years. If someone, if there were dead bodies, you know, in a village, in any continent, the community would get together and they had a system. That, so in the Sami people, which is spread over five countries, including Finland, Sweden, Norway. I was attending at one of their lawful trial by juries in December, and they called it a ting, T-I-N-G. So in Ireland, in ancient law, Phanoctis and Brehan law, we also had the same system and the same as you know, the 400 tribes of the Native Americans and everywhere in the world. And it was that the community would get together. They would select 12 men and women and then the 12 men and women would look at the what you know had happened and then there may be a number of men and women accused and then those people so the maxims of law in relation to that are that every man and woman is innocent until proven guilty so the verdict in law is innocence or guilty and that's a very uh, philosophical concept right about innocence and the the, the process of the trial by jury is done through the native language, and that's why the language is really important, and then the meaning of the words is important. So, so the entire law then is act in honor, do no harm, and that men and women have the right to life, travel, speech, privacy, and property, um, and that it's done through the men and women. Now, there is a hierarchy of law which can be found in ancient and recent writings. It, this is well known, and the process of the trial by jury is an oral tradition that overlaps with written uh, documents, and I've been studying the history of law and medicine all my life, including in antiquity and ancient writings. So we have 
like Shankus Moor, which is more than 4,000 years old. So in Ireland, we have the most ancient tradition of law and the first written language, and ancient Irish is the progenitor language of Sanskrit and all other languages in the world. Oh, oh wow, really? Exactly, yes. Yes, it is. So the ancient Irish language. So also we had, you know, we were known as a repository of knowledge and writing, and actually Ireland and the wisdom that was here held out against the Roman Empire, and we were also involved 500 years ago in restoring knowledge after the so-called, uh, you know, the first onslaught of this system, which turned out, you know, deceptively to be called the Dark Ages. So so when you're saying where is this knowledge of the law, it is held in the knowledge of all the ancient peoples in the world. And the oral tradition of that law is also a living repository of knowledge now, which is why the native and indigenous peoples, their knowledge is very important. And also they have an unbroken record of thousands of years for how the system of justice operates. And of course, so that's the law. Now there is a hierarchy of law and this is the hierarchy. So it turns out that there is an element in the hierarchy of law of the divine realm or the spiritual realm and the reason why that's important is it is a philosophical concept that men and women have an unbroken embodiment of these rights, including the right to life. So that the spiritual element is that before a new life is conceived, that those rights are there from before. So it's almost like um, a resonance in the universe. So in physics, it would be called quantum entanglement. In psychology, it would be the 100th monkey effect. And in the so-called religions or whatever, it would be around the attributed to particular words like God. Um, and in the area of law and ethics, it would be the knowledge of morality, right? So in different areas, it's given different names, but the knowledge is, you know, in maxims like do unto others, as you would have them done to you, or we'll say, you know, later on, much later on in the so-called commandments about do not murder, right? You know, mm, you cannot mm. go around. So, so then in the hierarchy of law, you have this divine spiritual element, whatever words we want to call it, quantum entanglement, um, the 100 monkey effect, right? This knowing about right and wrong. And I encapsulate that, that like a, 15-month-old little toddler, 18-month-old, if they saw a harm, even if they couldn't speak, they would have an intrinsic knowing that a wrong had been done. Yeah? So yeah. that is that is an element of knowing, and that can be encapsulated with whatever word. So in the hierarchy of law, it is as if men and women are born into that. So it's like the conscience is there, and then men and women have that. And then people are born into that. And then people bring in the concept when they have land of a nation. And historically in law, it has been more than 300 men and women who survive long enough for 300 to live on an island, we'll say if it was Iceland or wherever, and that they come together and they say, in law, we want to have a nation. And a nation requires a land, a people, 
a leader and the symbology of the claim of those people to their structure, the nation, and through a flag. Mm -hmm. And then they bring in a nation and then those peoples are recognized by at least three other people. And then they, below them, then they bring in the system of justice. And that usually has the system of trial by jury and then imprisonment, we'll say, a so-called structure for criminals or people who are being guilty of a crime in order to prevent them. Now, in Irish, in the ancient Phenoctus, Brehen Law tradition, people were often excluded, right? So it's like, you, you know, you were excluded to live somewhere or you were given various options depending on how, how you, you know, the penalty or that people would work to compensate if a father of six children was murdered by someone. So mm. there's a different system. And mm. then you have a simple system of governance, we'll say, or minimal governance, because it turns out when you go back to the ancient systems, you actually need very little uh, governance. So, And then below that, then, is anything written down. And the first system that's written down is the postal system in law. And that's why the post is like a flag, you know, the post in a flag, which is your claim. And then you are just delivering messages, whether oral or written, between posts. And that's the postal system in law. And then below that, if people want to enshrine like the 1919 constitution in Ireland that was done after the 1918 election, the first constitution, it said that men and women have inalienable rights that could never be taken away and never put to a vote. But a constitution or any other piece of paper is lower than the rights of men and women and their inalienable rights to property and life. And they can never be taken away by a piece of paper. And then mm. and then the system really of the, what we think of Supreme Courts, High Courts, local courts, is actually part of the mafia, fraudulent, criminal, so it, in law, fraud is a knowing that you are misrepresenting and the spectrum is deception, misrepresentation and fraud. And to be paid as a role in society like elected official or a police constable or to be engaged in a system of justice and misrepresent the law is malfeasance, lifetime in prison in England now, 20 years. So what we see as these guys dressed up in black, Supreme Court, High Court, Circuit Court, District Court or whatever, is actually part of just administering the agents of the legal system that use legal titles like Mr. and Doctor and has nothing to do with justice. So anything written down cannot take away your inalienable rights. So when I was organizing July 2020, August 2020, and all the rallies in the world with World Freedom Alliance, is that I was saying to people, we have these rights of life, which includes your ability to hear, to protect your life, to get information about life-saving, Nobel Prize-winning prevention and treatment, and that nobody can interfere with your right to free speech and your right to travel, to assemble, to meet other people, to get information. And no one can interfere with your health or your private property or your body. And those rights are above anything written down. And, and the last element of the deception is that in the legal system, the words for the businesses are given special names called persons and citizens. And what will be a shock to people is that all of the so-called legislation 
only applies to the business, Mr. Smith, which is doing commerce with other businesses, and that all the legislation by all the Westminster or the Dáil, so-called in Ireland, and all around the world, is does not apply to living men and women. And so why I'm involved in organizations worldwide is that we need to, and we already in a way have done a lot of the work to provide the elements through cooperatives and education so that people will not be panicking when they realize that those half a million bits of paper only apply to the legal entity, Mr. Smith, which is not alive and is just on a register of the City of London or the Vatican and uh, doesn't really apply to us. Because really, you know, when you have a, you can have a system of taxation in the world, it's just like a 2% transaction tax, the Tobin tax. And as a society, we can agree in this 10 years that, you know, all debts are investigated like lawfully by a trial by jury, and that we'll all stop at red lights. Do you know what I mean? That we'll just do the minimum and that we will um, transition. So 50 years ago, everything operated in the law. There was no half a million EU regulations, right, that all contradicted each other. And there was no like thousands and thousands of these legislation. And that in the next 10 years or so, we will go back to... Uh, the system where society works much better and that everybody is accountable in the law and that we can have an open and transparent discussion about what kind of minimum infrastructure do we need for taxation to sort out the roads and to provide a lawful you know, care and emergency services and that we then do an audit of the education system, the health system, the police and the courts. And it's absolutely not overwhelming at all. And for the last four years, there are thousands of us literally in every continent all around the world working in the World Freedom Alliance, Guardians 300 with the Veterans World Doctors Alliance and in Custodian Institute now to actually provide the framework in all nations in the world. And it's, it's gonna be a real sigh of relief. And we really have only started working since 2020. Because okay. many of us were on our own in our nations with nobody to talk to. And now we have come together. So it's actually, it's going to be a breath of fresh air and a relief to everyone be, to actually expose what's going on and to have a beautiful 10 years or generation imagining the wonderful world where families are important, where the, the people trafficking in the mass migration that we actually help those people to go home, not to be people trafficked by civil servants and agents dressed up as police and people ripping off the system. And they will be home and we will have a beautiful system for everybody because people in general want to work peacefully. Um, yeah, and yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. You're like no guest I've ever had before, Dolores. And that's <clears throat> as a compliment. I'm juggling to keep all the things in my head that I want to say so, yeah, first I want to say, you know, I'd like to know this jury, just jury of, you know, 12 men and women, where do we get that from? And are we able to hold these officials, these ministers, these politicians, these civil servants to account? Can we drag them by their neck in front of this jury? How do we do that? Because 
we're we're in this system, this matrix, where they've got all the these people dressed up as police officers, these people dressed up as an army, these people dressed up as bailiffs with the with the batons and the handcuffs and everything, and and the heavies, and we don't even have guns or anything. How do we defend ourselves? So how do we bring justice, the the law, to these people? Secondly, um, you know, how is it that this system is all pervasive amongst all cultures and religions? You know, there's a law, the Sharia law, there's the Torah law. I mean, are these all corrupted? Are these all corrupted laws? And they've all they've all come across to all of these countries and they're all singing and the same uh, the same hymn sheet. How did this happen? Because, you know, you would have thought an Arabic Muslim country would be very different from a Western country, but seems like they're all practicing the same legal system, the same financial system. What the hell is going on? I mean, in my head, I had a thought last night, which was very depressing. Actually, forget this idea that they want a one world, one world government. They've actually already got it. They've already got this one world government. And now I, any fighting that you see, Russia, the China, America, it's just basically the mafia fighting with another mafia and another mafia. And they're all trying to jostle to see who's the top dog at the table. And, and all they've not done is declare that we have got a one world government because in all intents and purposes, the world is acting like a one world government. Everything is the same. Globalization is there. All the same agendas, the same narratives. Um, and there's nowhere that you want to run to and say, right, this is this is the place that I'd rather be. Everywhere is a shit show. Um, what else did I want to say? There's something else. Um, let's just start off there <laughs> for stars. <laughs> so I think if you listen to what your questions are, there's two strands, right? Which is you are right to ask it because that's what everyone listening, I think, want to know is... How do we implement the solution, which is your first question about how do we organize um, the trial by jury system? And how did this thing get so pervasive? So I'm always hopeful. So I'll just say the trial by jury system, first of all, I went at my own expense just October, November, December in eight countries as examples last year, October, November, December, 2023. I spoke one-to-one -to, -one to about 4,000 people, all organized within our network, you know, sleeping on couches or whatever it is, where we spoke to 50 people or 100 people, 200 people. So I went to Italy and Austria, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and Britain, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland as examples. And in October, in November of November, December, we held an educational trial by jury event in Oxford with hundreds of people. And that was as an educational event around the precedence of 15-minute cities in Oxford. And the lady who was the precedence in that educational event was a beautiful young woman Muslim taxi driver, where she was being given pieces of paper by the Oxford Council infringing on her right to travel. Yeah. And then we went on, I went on to speak, and about 20 countries came to Oxford in our network. And that is also that I have spent, you know, in the last four years, a lot of time building relationships of trust around the world. And then the Oxford event was for those people to meet each other and get each other's contact details so that if anything was to happen to me, I would become less important. Yeah. And then we went on about 12 people from 12, sorry, more than 12 people, but from 12 nations went on and we observed a Sami 
educational thing around 5G in Norway. Yeah. So when mm -hmm. you're saying how does a trial by jury work, it works through the people where you need a proper jury enrollment system. And to do a jury enrollment, you need people to know the basis of the law. Now, what we did in 2020, the veterans, I'm forever grateful, came to defend many of us in Britain and Ireland and around the world. And Mick Stott, who was one of the veterans, 30 years in the British Army and uh, was in, you know, working in the British Academy in Sandhurst for many years at a very high level, um, he set up the Guardians 300 and we, 90 of us were trained as trainers. I was one of the 90, one of the, in the first uh, lot of training. And then between us in 2021, we went on to train in person over 100,000 people in Britain and Ireland. And what that was were one-day courses to teach people about the law. And at that time was so that if you didn't want to wear a mask, what language would you, how would you actually talk to somebody if you wanted to travel or you wanted to buy food without being intimidated and coerced? So to answer your question about how does the, how do you then start a jury system in nations is you then build on that kind of structure um, to educate people and then to set up a trial by jury system. And of course, the mafia system, right, the corrupt legal agency system where people call themselves uh, agents. So whether it's an officer or a title, yeah, a legal title of the agency, they will, of course, try and stop us doing that because there's two issues for them. You know, the law is actually delivered free, right? Everybody does the trial by jury for free, like all of us have worked voluntarily in this system. But of course, as a corruption and mockery, the barristers and judges, right, the, the agents, they try and steal people's time and property and resources. So they, they try and put themselves up on a pedestal that, you know, their, their work for one day is equivalent to your work for a year, right? Mm. So mm. why there are multiple mm. elements to why doctors and uh, people involved in the registering system and the licensing system and the officers is that their income will be stopped and that they could be the precedence for accountability, right? As one uh, man dressed up as police or one coroner. So they, they, it's a worrying time for them, yeah? But what we have to do is we're literally not developing anything new because we had the lawful systems of trial by jury up until one or two generations ago. And wherever you have native and indigenous peoples not corrupted by this mafia legal system uh, titled, so-called, you know, using titles, the, mm. uh, the indigenous people will actually teach in our nations, how it was always done and extend from their knowledge to the rest of the nation. Now, the beautiful thing about that is that people will get access to justice for free and that people can be held accountable. And why it was very important when we did the, the set up the World Doctors Alliance in 2020, I'm very honored to be president of that and president of the World Freedom Alliance is that from the beginning, we have set up an audit and oversight mechanism that 20 nations can be involved in being lawful observers 
into any lawful trial by jury process in any nation around the world, because we are also accountable that we don't abuse the system. Mm. Yeah. So that's mm. the first thing. It's actually easier than you think. And because we can do a precedence about the coroner's death certs or the radiation that's, you know, maybe exposed for a pregnant woman or if seven-year-olds or five-year-olds in an education thing are having nosebleeds because of being exposed to harmful radiation or if it's arsenic, you know, a toxin in the water or mercury or fluoride, a precedence case in one nation can be the precedence in law for the rest of the world. How, yeah. Have we done? How, has there been any precedent cases like this? If it's that easy, has, has it been done anywhere? Right. So the thing is, that's a very good question. So one of the things as well to answer your question about the law and precedence is that how you uphold the law is you defend your rights, but not in their courts. You defend your rights. So you stop them doing criminal behavior. So interfering with people's right to travel. Right. So. What I did in Ireland, I, I defended our rights as a precedence in two examples. In the August 2020 event, in July and August 2020 is, that the legal system, deceptively misrepresentation and in malfeasance, criminally fraudulently said, anyone organizing a meeting of 30 people outside was 10 years in prison. Mm -hmm. Right. So a precedence was when I organized and bought the as there was like 10 other people, but I was taking responsibility to the people dressed up as police. And they did actually instigate allegedly proceedings against me to put me in prison for 10 years. And they but they never wrote to me. But I defended that and was successful. Right. So that is a precedence to go around and organize rallies where they say they're going to put everybody in prison for 10 years and they don't. That is an example of a precedence. Right. But how did you how did you defend yourself from that? So I can, I'll tell you now briefly, but the issue for them is that if you are paid as a chief magistrate of England and Wales or, you know, somebody, the director for public prosecution, Catherine or Paul, they have a dilemma because they know the law. If they, so in the law, you have to take ownership of your actions, right? That is an accusation. You're saying to someone, I am paid as a justice, you know, as someone in the law, and I am going to accuse you of a criminal offence. Now, the problem for Paul or Catherine is that they know the law, it's lifetime in prison for them to make a false accusation, right? So they essentially have the hot potato. Do you get it? So the thing is, you know, if you don't have fear and you're willing to die or, or spend, you know, the rest of your life in prison, you're basically saying, okay, this COVID-19 thing, I'm now handing the hot potato to the people dressed up as police or the Supreme Court. Yeah, because I know that it's lifetime in prison for you. If you write to me or you come out and do an interview or do a warrant for my arrest, you have to take responsibility and autograph with your name as Paul or Catherine that it is a criminal offense. So they 
did not do that. So I never got any documents. But in the newspapers worldwide, they said that they had sent the summonses to the Irish Freedom Party, who had asked me to resign because I said masks were harmful for children. The Irish Freedom Party never contacted me. And then because I didn't know about their so-called case in England against me, that I couldn't attend because the Irish Freedom Party, Herman Kelly, never told me. And the police in Ireland never told me. The police and courts never wrote to me because whoever would write to me would be lifetime in prison for them. They then put worldwide news. There was warrants for my arrest for non-appearance between the Irish Freedom Party in the newspapers and the Chief Magistrate of England and Wales. So that's where the newspapers were in August of 2021. There were warrants for my arrest for non-appearance because no one had written to me. So then I wrote to the Chief Magistrate for England and Wales and asked him to provide the evidence in law. And in those newspapers, they said it was £3,000 fine that I have a conviction under COVID-19. And it was £10,000 fine or 10 years in prison. And then I had already written to Boris Johnson, Priti Patel, the president, you know, so-called president of the corporation, right? These are all agents, but I'd written to them in their private capacity and the four attorney generals that if anybody, if I was to be unlawfully detained, that they would hold the liability in their private capacity. Do you get it? Because there are key roles, attorney generals, you know, agents as prime ministers or whatever, but you're writing to them as Boris, Priti Patel, whatever their first names are. So, of course, that would mean then they were trying to threaten me as a scientist and professor thinking, well, we will undermine her reputation much more by now accusing her and having warrants out for her arrest. But I was then handing the hot potato back to them and going, okay, if you do put me in prison, then you will be the precedence in law because the COVID-19 is saying that you guys can tell people you can't travel more than five or 10 miles, which is infringing on their inalienable right to travel. And that is lifetime in prison for any prime minister or any attorney general or any, any member, uh, anyone. Right. Lifetime in prison for yep. them. So it was like game on. So then I ended up um, paying for it through the agency, which is a promissory note in the banking system. And if because the lower courts are working through the banking system, if uh, the chief magistrate so-called didn't accept the promissory note, it would have collapsed. The There's a fraudulent financial racket going on behind the summonses to their system where they are doing financial transactions on the legal entities. And I paid for a promissory note. Now, the chief magistrate of England, Wales, if he didn't accept it, it would have collapsed the city of London system. So he wrote back and said I was £500 short, which I also issued another promissory note and paid the £500. Now, that was to tell them the system that I had a very detailed understanding of the fraud because the legal system. So when you wrote a pro sorry, when you wrote the, with the banking system, yeah. So this yeah. legal entity, actually, the whole thing about the thirteen oh two on sanctum 
and the 1542 and 1666 is actually the creation of a number of structures, a false claim, <coughs> fraudulent claim on the name and the legal entity, but they open property and bank accounts behind that. And that is, you know, where the mortgages come out is that you actually, through your autograph, you generate the fiat system money. So you actually own that money, you're not given to it, and then you give it back to them. And then you spend 20 years of your life paying three times back for that money. Now, that is what I was doing there was saying this, that I do not just have an understanding of the fraud within the law and regulatory system and the health system, but I had a very deep understanding of the banking system. And because you only need one precedence to expose the whole thing in the world, I was, you know, then informing them that actually they had generated the worldwide precedence, which was saying that any lockdown based on the United Nations Agenda 21 for climate change or a false pandemic, that we had essentially exposed it and disarmed the corrupt legal system and the corrupt uh, system that's going on because the number that you get to invite you to court is actually a banking transaction. And I had paid off the banking transaction. Now, the beauty of this system is you only need one or a small number of people to expose it in a precedent. So my whole message is that it might take, uh, you know, 10 years for people to understand it. But essentially, we have been successful in precedence in the last couple of years to expose the whole thing. Okay. That, when you did the promissory note, did you literally just write down on a piece of paper, I promise to pay you 500 pounds? Yes, I issued a, you know, from my uh, kitchen table, we'll say. But of course I had done some research on it and then I got a lawful notary to, um, to autograph it with me. But what was interesting is that the notaries in Ireland had visits from the police and phone calls from departments and governments and were intimidated to not do that again, right? That is the power in law of the notary system. And then we went on to get notaries in Britain as well. So, yeah. Now, there is another system that if you have not access to uh, notaries in law, there's also notaries in the legal system, but I was getting access to notaries in law that three uh, men and women can also do the verification that it was indeed I was alive on that day. And, of course, the lawful postal system is very important uh, in those as well. So it's all very easy to do. And what I don't want to do is to overwhelm people. What yeah, I want to say I, is that I'm, it's actually very easy to, to make individual men and women liable to hold the hot potato for the whole system. And now, in a way, the fear is moving to them, in a way, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I'm definitely one of those who is overwhelmed. I, I would love you to come back, if you don't mind. Yes. And if you're ever and if you're ever near Oxford, I'm not that far from Oxford. You need to come and visit me so I can give you a hug. And we can do it. <laughs> I got a nice studio here. You can come and join me. See my chickens. No, I'm here being serious. Are. I'm being yeah, serious. No, no, lovely. Lovely. I'd okay. like to do that. So one of the things I was gonna say was I know you said it's very simple. It is very simple. Look, people watch me operate 
when I used to operate as a surgeon, go, oh my God, how do you do this? It was really simple for me. I could, I, I could do it with my eyes closed, but I wouldn't. But it was that, it was very simple. Operating for me was very simple. But it's simple when you know how. It's simple when you know. Everything is difficult when you don't know. And the problem is, like you said, over the last decades and centuries and maybe millennia, we have been denied the knowledge, the wisdom, and have been dumbed down, have been made fearful and confused and ignorant. And that's why all of this isn't actually simple for all of us because we're in the dark and we need to shine the light on this so that we're not ignorant and we're not fearful and we, we know and we're in the knowledge. Um, so I just wanted to say that to you. And then I think you said something like, you know, ignorance is no excuse for not knowing the ignorance law. Ignorance of the law is no excuse because yeah. it's so simple. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I mean, I'll give an example. So my medical director threatened to refer me to the GMC for being transphobic. Um, I posted a tweet saying, is Mul Dylan Mulvaney a woman? All right. I did a tweet of a lion with blood on it saying this lion identifies as a vegetarian. I, I did a, a tweet of a young Indian village girl saying this Indian village girl identifies as a Viking. Okay, I know these are provocative tweets, but I was just trying to take the piss that you can identify as anything you like, but it doesn't change reality. So if a, a big hairy man goes, I'm a woman, I'm going to laugh and say bullshit. No, you're not. And you should stay at the little girl's toilet. Okay. So that was my tweets. Apparently there were five anonymous complaints and the, and my medical director didn't ask to see me or whatever. She, she wrote to me and saying, you know, we've received these complaints and based on these complaints, I will be referring my concerns to the GMC. That's what she said. I will be referring my concerns to the GMC. And, um, and that was it. I didn't, I didn't hear anything back. I was like, am I going to get a letter from them? Am I going to get a notice from the GMC? I've never been referred to the GMC. Is this a referral to the GMC? Do I get a copy of it? I don't know. I was like, I think I've been referred, but I'm not really sure. Um, anyway, anyway, he wrote to the other medical director that I was working out of another private hospital, informing him that I was referred to the GMC. And in that form, it said, you know, are you notifying the doctor? And she ticked the box saying no. And then she said, but I, I'm aware that he can ask for a copy of this form um, and we'll, we will provide it to him if he asks for it. I didn't even know there was this fracking form. I wasn't copied in. I didn't even know there was this form. So she sent this form to this other doctor, medical director, and then they wrote to the GMC and I was waiting to, you know, what does this letter mean? I'm referring my concerns to the GMC. And like, is this, is this a referral? Have I been referred? I think I've been referred. I'm not sure. After a while, I even wrote to the GMC saying, is there, any, is there any complaints against me? And they never wrote back. And then eventually I heard them saying, no, no complaints. But then a month later in September, three months later in September, I got a phone call from the second hospital, the medical director that never referred me. Um, but another one saying, you're suspended with immediate effect. And I said, why? Because you failed to notify us of a GMC referral. And I went, was there a referral? Yes. How do you know? We can't tell you, but we know you were. I mean, how come you know that I was referred and I don't? 
well, you've talked about it on your social media that you refer. I was like, yeah, I think I've been referred, but I've never had any evidence that I've been referred. I haven't seen anything. And I even wrote to the GMC and they said, no, well, you have. Anyway, it turned out because I got freedom of information on the 18th of September, the GMC wrote back to the original medical director and said, there's no fitness to practice issue here. We can understand why you referred him. He is a bit conspiratorial, anti-vaxxer, you know, all that kind of stuff. But there's, there's nothing we can do about this. Maybe you should explore your local hospital policies. The next day, she had notified the other hospital. And that other hospital who knew about the GMC referral, because they were notified by that first medical director. They had given, she had given them the form, even though they had sat on it for three months, knowing there was a referral, they turned around to me and said, right, you're suspended. Now, my ignorance was, I didn't know there was this form. I didn't know she had made the referral. I wasn't copied in. How is it my fault? So what I'm saying is, I know what you mean by the ignorance, but how can it be my fault because I was ignorant? So, of course, I'm very sorry for all that. But in a way, what we have since 2020 is this is the time of revelation, right? Now, the question that you should have asked is, I would say for people to ask is, what is this Mr. Smith, Dr. Malik thing? What is this doctor? So it's, it's not about, you know, when it affects you, right? Because in a way, everybody is a little bit busy is that in a divine way, in a beautiful way, the system has been so stealth, yeah? And that a lot of people have benefited from the system that they haven't actually taken the time to analyze when other people are affected with unfairness and mm. false accusations. Yes. And when they have seen that, oh, well, like I say to the, you know, I've been saying to dentists for 30, 40 years, mercury is the most poisonous non-radioactive substance on the planet. Have you ever thought, why are you putting that, the most poisonous substance into healthy seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds? You're making money out of that. I was, you know, qualified to run a class up to a class four facility like the equivalent of Wuhan which means you had to know, uh, be qualified in every aspect of toxins and radioactivity and, you know, all types of things that could harm people, including mercury and poisons like arsenic. Um, so the thing is that the whole system of the law is that we have to pay attention when other people are harmed. Mm. Or, so the whole law is act in honor and do no harm. So anyone who's my generation have seen good people bullied out of mental health, psychiatry, education, nursing, right? Now, and the same as what happened through us on the farm with animals being poisoned and farmers being bullied and our neighbors. Now, because I knew the law and because I grew, I was in a family who were very knowledgeable about many aspects of society, but also my grandfather was involved and stood for election in 1918. He was 32 in 1916, which were ordinary people like we were, just farmers, who dedicated their lives to actually recognizing there was a corrupt element like the penal laws in Ireland 100 or 200 years before and the Holocaust of half the population being killed in Ireland, going from 8 million to 4 million in 
five years between 1845, 1850, that, Mm. you know, many, many people said, wait a minute, this is not the system of justice. This is like a, the penal laws were the instigation. And of course, because this system was involved between the Vatican and the city of London, they could Mm. not have a very knowledgeable, spiritual, superbly educated nation that had an indigenous language and a very strong element of uh, justice yeah, on their doorstep, which is why we were targeted specifically, including in 11, from 1155 as a rollout of this system. So the, the issue is that you're affected now, but a lot of people have ignored the suffering of their colleagues in their profession and the bullying that has happened for a couple of generations. Yeah. hundred percent. So I'm now, guilty. I'm guilty of no, that. And, 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 Andrew, Andrew Wakefield, hundred percent. I didn't know about him. Sarah Myhill, same thing. Well, All these things. No, I'm totally exactly. guilty. So, so Exactly. So I'm not like criticizing, but I think the thing is mm. that since 2020, this is literally the, the time of revelation, right? Mm. That the, we are the first generation that could have figured it. Well, you know, my, you see, the indigenous native people will say, like the travelers as well. In Ireland, they're called travelers, which is a respectful name. The people who knew the law and would not put their sons and daughters onto the register of the birth certificate because they had an understanding of what it was about. Uh, mm. So that there is a knowledge probably in, in the world of one in 10 people have an unbroken oral and uh, ancient history and written history of the legal system, right? The corruption. And so really, though, for the rest of the population, only since, we'll say, YouTube and the access of the internet since the 1980s could, you know, a small number of people forensically have spent 20, 30 years looking through all the documents and made them available through the system, right? Through archives and through researching it like a profession. And only since 2020, really, have we got together in order to educate, you know, maybe another 20% of the population who are stunned, but where it has directly impacted them that they wouldn't carry on with the corruption or they were kicked out of a restaurant or they lost their profession because, Mm. yeah, so literally our clock is only starting from 2020 and my whole message is for people not to be overwhelmed this system has really only ratcheted up to extend to a majority of the population in the last two generations it is entirely corrupt and the the kingpin to solve it is to work strategically together over the next two years, five years, 10 years, or generation to um, develop precedence examples and to restore the knowledge of law, accountability, and justice, and that all of us then volunteer in a trial-by-jury system in the next 10 years or in the next generation. So the knowledge that men and women cannot go around deceptively misrepresenting health or education or the law, and that there is a criminal offense now 
called malfeasance or deception, you know, misrepresentation, mm. fraud, malfeasance, mm. and that no one is above the law, that, that we have to get that knowledge out. But I think we need to be patient as well. And mm. also people like you who have lost your profession, even just intuitively, you knew there was something wrong. But when you learn how correct you were, that you must act lawfully and that nobody has the right to deceptively ruin your reputation and your profession and your standing in your society without putting their name to that allegation and without you and them going on front of a trial by jury system for you to defend the accusation and for the other woman or whatever to hold the liability. And then the last thing is that people who are professionals have to realize that they have qualifications as dentists or physiotherapists or educators or physicians in law, and they do not get their ability to be professional from the legal entity associated with the title Mr. Smith or Dr. Malik that is on a City of London register, which is fraudulently and deceptively trying to obfuscate the law through the corrupt legal system practices, which is also undermining the money and financial system. Amazing. Right. Can I, can I, I've taken up a lot of your time. Can I end with no, one no, question? No, this is wonderful. Thank you. I have all the time in the world. This is my, this is my, what I'm doing now on a voluntary basis. And I'm very honored that you would right. interview me. Yeah. No, I'm honored. I'm honored. So I would say, sign me up. If I can help in any way, let me know. I'm on. Right. So that's number one. Number two, my signature question, the way I end is if, Dolores, you've lived a long life, hopefully. You're well into your hundreds. You're on your deathbed, surrounded by your family and your loved ones. Before you pass on and meet your maker, what advice are you going to give them? Um, I would say for people to take all the opportunities they have in life to do good and to use their time and energy to ensure that everybody's rights are defended and that we come from a position of loving everybody and that we see everybody else's mothers and fathers and sons and daughters as our own uh, family members and that we will use every minute of every day to give them the best world. So if we're teachers, that they get the best education. If we're health professionals, if our role is to, you know, as police are in any system, that we just all act in honor, do no harm and do unto others as we would want to have done to us and love your neighbors and your brothers and sisters as you would wish to be loved. Beautiful place to end. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you and to everyone listening. Take care. Bye-bye.